0: All right. Welcome. Uh, If if you haven't been around since we've been in Judges, welcome. It's a beautiful, bright book full of just graciousness and all sorts of fun stories. I'm just joking. It's full of darkness. Uh, Again, I want to kind of catch you up to speed. It's been seven weeks since we've been in Judges because of Advent and, and the way the calendar fell. And so a lot has happened in the last seven weeks Uh, And and we've taken a break from that. But the story of Judges, if this is your first time here or you you don't remember, the story of Judges is a story of the people of Israel and how they had lost their way and their identity by being caught up in this cycle of rebellion. So as as a refresher, on the screen behind me, you'll see uh, here's the cycle. Israel has peace. Israel becomes complacent. They make compromises, and you see Israel rebel. From there, there's punishment. God punishes Israel. He kind of removes himself from from their provider uh, because they're worshiping idols of the land. And then you see Israel gets tired of that. They're like, oh, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken us? And they cry out to God. And then you see God has mercy. He raises up, appoints a judge, a rescuer, a hero. The judge delivers. Israel has peace and so on. But what we've seen in our time together is that the cycle gets progressively worse each time. Meaning, if you've been around, as they cry out, God does provide this judge, but then they grow more and more complacent. They make more and more compromises in how they live their life, and yet it's so important to remember this. In all of the chaos, Judges truly is a, a beautiful book, but you've got you to search for it, you got to look for it. In all of the chaos and rebellion, we see that God has been faithful. And that's the tension, that's the suspense found all throughout the story of Judges. Like you have a God who says, hey, I said I will never break my covenant. I'll give you the land that I promised to give you. I'll do this, but I also, don't forget this, I also said if you compromise with these nations, if you grow more and more disobedient, then I'm not going to drive them out. I'll give you your heart's desire. But if we were to zoom out and look at the bigger story at play this morning, which we will, I think we'd see that it's, just, it's not just the tension found uh, in the story of Judges. It's not even just the tension found all throughout scriptures, but I think it's actually the tension we find ourselves in in our own lives today. Is God going to give up on his people? Is he going to give up on you and all of your rebellion? But I thought he was faithful. Well, is God going to give in to his people and just give you everything that you want? But I thought he was a holy God and can't stand for our rebellion. The answer we see in the bigger story over and over again is this. God is love, and that's the driving force behind everything he is, everything he says, and everything he does. So in God, because he is love, the tension gets resolved. That out of a heart of love flows his grace and his mercy. Like, hear this. He loves his people so much that he works in and through all things, not just for his glory, but for our good. That's the beauty of King Jesus. That's the beauty of our creator. But as we know, there's about seven more weeks in Judges. The story of Judges continues. The people, the stories of the lives of the people of God continue. Your story continues continues on this morning as well. So the question for you this morning as we dig in to the text is where do you find yourself in the tension today? Where do you find yourself in this? God, where are you? I thought you said you were faithful. Where have you gone? God, are you still going to pursue me even in my rebellion? Where do you find yourself in the tension today? So let's see what the Spirit might have for us. Uh, Again, if you think back before Advent, we ended in chapter 13, by being introduced to our last judge. Now, over the next few weeks, you're going to see, we'll close out, Samson is our last judge. And if you can recall, we noticed a lot of similarities in chapter 13 between the birth of Samson, the announcement of his birth, at least, and then the announcement of, we kind of paralleled that to the announcement of the birth of Jesus. An angel of the Lord appears to the mother in Samson's case, we see that his mom is left unnamed. We see that she recognizes who this angel of the Lord is. She's drawn in, understands who he is, that he was, this is an angel from the Lord. But she wasn't able to conceive a child. And so when the angel of the Lord appears to her, she's, she's willing to listen, right? She can't conceive She's told by an angel of the Lord that she will conceive, and so she's drawn into this. And with the announcement, of course, came a bit of confusion, as you can uh, imagine. But nonetheless, she heard what was spoken, and she listened to this man. She was given a few stipulations. Hey, you're going to have a child, okay? And here's some few stipulations as to how you and your family are to live, how you should raise your son. And as the scene closes in chapter 13, it's almost as if... The birth of Samson sets the scene for a hero to be born. Like you see all these similarities, it's kind of cool. Angel of the Lord, Mary, angel of the Lord to Samson's uh, unnamed mom, like all of these things, it seems like the scene is closing with a lot of hope because we have then the spirit of the Lord begin to stir him. Wow, like this is this the hero that they've been waiting for? Is this the hero in this narrative that we see? Step in, but we're left wondering, is this going to be the driving force for Samson in his life? So as we walk through our text this morning, I want you to hear the tension in the story. So chapter 14, I'm going to kind of do this in a different way. I want to tell the story. we have heard it read. Now I want to kind of go back and explain it as we go through 13, the spirit of the Lord stirred him. Now we see in 14, if you have your text, follow along. We see Samson has grown. We see, he desires a bride. So what does he do? He sets out to Timnah to search for one. He wants a bride. I'm going to go down to this neighboring town and find one. Now, something interesting here that I don't want us to miss. I think it's important for you to remember this. Timnah, this town, was deep inside the Israel territory. Like, this wasn't just a... wasn't just a, a, a cute little town that was on the outskirts of Israel. Like this, the Philistines resided in deep inside Israel territory. Now the Philistines, why it's interesting, were, were terrible enemies of the Israelites. Some of their worst enemies resided deep in the territory. You, you tracking with me on this? They resided their worst enemies. Resided. They made a, a lifestyle for them. They made their life for themselves. They set up shop deep inside Israel territories. Just keep that in mind. And it's there that Samson, the man of God, remember God raises up a judge. Samson, the man of God, chosen to deliver, to rescue, to save his people, goes and he finds his bride there, a Philistine woman that he would like to marry. Now this went against everything God had intended for his people. You can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. God gives them clear expectations, clear instructions. Don't marry non-Israelites, especially from the land of Canaan, which is where we find ourselves. Now, this wasn't some sort of racial or ethnic hostility that God had towards these people. This was for their own good. This was so that the people of God wouldn't be drawn in to idol worship. And all the compromises that come with idling or uh, worshiping idols... It's almost as if God knew what was best for his people. Makes sense. But as the story goes, what do we have? Samson went against the wishes of his parents. You can see that. And he went against the law of God. And Samson, catch this, took what he desired. What does he say? She's the right one for me. Now, in all of this, God still chose to use it as part of his bigger plan of redemption. I think that's also important. I'm going to give you a lot of nuggets and then connect the dots at the end. It's really important to understand that. God still chose to use this. Walking in disobedience, he still chose to use it as part of his bigger plan for redemption. And then as as the story goes, you see he's on the way to meet his future bride. We see it's kind of an interesting story. Like some of you, raise your hand if when you think of Samson, you either think of long hair and strength or tearing apart a lion. Like if you grew up in the church, you remember those stories? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we remember him for. Um, Terrible leader, to be very clear, and we'll see that shortly. But nonetheless, this is where the story comes from. He's met with a young lion on his way to, to, to find his bride, This lion suddenly appears to him, and it's in that moment we see the Scripture says, the Spirit of God powerfully came upon him. I think that's important to remember as well. And the result was Samson didn't just kill the lion. We see that he ripped apart with his bare hands this young lion. He tore the lion apart. Yes, some pretty incredible strength because the Spirit of God, it says, came powerfully Upon him, The same strength that he's eventually going to be made known for, famous for. Even thousands of years later, we know him for his strength. Kind of crazy. The dude chose not to say a word about it, like it's just some normal thing on his road to go meet his bride in a town that he shouldn't find his bride in. And his parents, they're on their, their way, their journey, and he, he kind of goes off track. He rips this line apart. He joins back up with mom and dad. I mean, why would I say anything about that? There's nothing interesting. Hey, how was your day, son? This is all right. Tore apart a lion. It's normal. But at this point, if Samson had any concern with God's will for his own life, that's what I want you to think of, any sense of following the vow that they, his family, committed to live by, then he would have known... That touching something dead, according to the Nazarite vow, he should have instantly, immediately gone to the tabernacle for a holy cleansing, if you will. Why? Because he touched something dead. What was the deal that the angel of the Lord said? Live by this. Live by this law. Don't, don't veer away from it. Do this. Everything's going to be all right. And Samson, the one who, who's the byproduct of his, mom, his mom's child, goes, veers off, touches something dead. He should have gone to the tabernacle, but he didn't. So while we're not sure what's going through his mind, it's probably why he didn't say anything to his parents, but we're not really sure what's going through his mind. We are sure of what has his eye. A Philistine woman who what? Who seemed right to him. He became infatuated with this woman from first sight as he laid his eyes on her, And whether or not it was right in the eyes of God for him to marry from the idol-worshipping oppressive Philistines, he seemed to not care. And it didn't bother him. He just seemed to just like, yeah, this is what I want. His only concern was what was right in his own eyes. Does that sound, if you've been around for a little bit, does that sound like a familiar phrase we've seen throughout the story of judges? Over and over again, they did. The people did what was right in their own eyes. But nonetheless, we see he meets back up with his parents. He doesn't question it. We don't know any of that. He just just doesn't say a word about what just took place, and he goes to prepare to marry this woman. On his way, he leaves the road again. They've journeyed back. Now he's getting ready. As the story goes, he's getting ready to, to marry, and so he leaves the road again on his journey back to the woman, and he finds the lion's carcass. It had been laying there for a minute, there he finds a swarm of bees with honey in the carcass. So he does what any of us would do, right? He dips his hand in that honey, he eats it, and then he offers some to his mom and his dad. Samson, yet again, disobeys the vow. They weren't supposed to eat anything considered unclean. So not only has Samson killed a lion and not gone through with his Nazarite vow, not done the proper things, if you will, now he's invited his mom and dad in, and they unknowingly eat unclean honey. I'm sure they were like, oh, honey, this great is this honey is great. Thank you for this. They partake in it, and now he's allowed them, his mom and dad, to break their vow with God unknowingly. As, again, the story goes, he goes to marry his bride. In this, he prepares a week-long feast for all of their wedding guests, and at the feast, he tells everyone a riddle, and he offers them a pretty hefty reward in, uh, if they could figure it out this way. Riddle. And the riddle was this, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And if they were to get this riddle, he would give each of these 30 men, his hand-picked or whatever, groomsmen, he'd give them a very expensive set of clothes. So culturally, culturally speaking, he was a bit in over his head on this bet. It's a lot of money. 30 men, it's a pretty hefty bet he's throwing down. A little bit impulsive on his part, but in his mind, remember, he's not told anybody about what he's done. The event that just took place with the lion. So he's banking on a pretty easy win. However, during the week-long feast, you see the men grow angry. They want to figure it out. They want their new bougie suit. Whatever it is, they're, they're ready to win this. So they go to his bride, and they begin to threaten his new bride. Hey, your life's on the line, I want what I want. I want my suit, and I need you to convince your new husband to tell me what this riddle means. Or if not, you and your family are dead to us. So she goes. She's obviously a bit upset. She starts crying to Samson. Why do you hate me? If you loved me, you'd tell me. But he refused to tell her on that day or the next day and all the way for the rest of the days of the celebration. But she was persistent. We see scripture says that she just kept nagging and begging him to answer until the last day, the last day of the feast, Samson finally gave in. He gave the answer to his bride, and then she takes that answer, and she reports to the Philistine men with this answer, what could be sweeter than honey, the the answer to the riddle, what could be sweeter than honey, what could be stronger than a lion? They tell Samson the answer to his riddle, and it's in that moment he becomes... Uh, He he knows what's happened. He becomes furious. He said to them, you used my bride. He actually says, you used my my cow uh, and you tricked me. And that's a derogatory term, obviously in our culture, but specifically in their culture. You used her and you tricked me. His anger grew. It consumed him. He left the feast. He knew he'd be in trouble if he didn't pay up. And so what does he do? He goes to another town and he murders I mean, this story just makes sense, right? I owe 30 bougie suits. I better go murder 30 people so that I can pay up this bet. Even here, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him to defeat 30 innocent men. Interesting. He killed 30 men. He took their clothes, he gave them to the Philistine men, and in a rage, chapter 14, in a cute way, closes. Just joking, it's not cute. Samson leaves his bride to the men, terrible, and he returns home. Now, I chose to do that. I don't usually just say, hey, we're going to read through the narrative once and then tell you my paraphrase. But I told you early on, I wanted you to hear the tension of the story. Instead of me just telling you the tension, I wanted you to kind of see the series of events. I wanted you to see what was happening as Samson, as we're reading this story, because here's what I mean. We're introduced, so you know, to perhaps the, the worst, most flawed leader yet we've seen in judges. And we've seen some pretty terrible judges. Like we've seen them do some corrupt things. We've seen them, their, them fall in their leadership, them bully and get, use people to get what they wanted. Most authors would describe Samson as a violent, impulsive, sexually addicted, emotionally immature, and selfish man. Like, that's what stands out. And I think we're going to see how accurate that is in a PG-13 over the next few weeks. Um, But the story progresses. And I told you early on in Judges, it gets pretty dark. But God continues to get very, very faithful with his people. But in our text this morning, it's it's evident that Samson is impulsive. Like, if I could sum all of that up, he's impulsive. I, I don't think I have to go into much depth here. Uh, On this, but just to be clear, he doesn't seem to think clearly. He's a bit emotionally immature. He can walk through this story. He's he's maybe even a bit insecure, meaning he's going to react based on how he feels in the moment. And all of this is going to stem from a selfish heart. From the very get go, what happens? He sees, just talking about the woman here, he sees, he wants, and he takes. He doesn't even heed to his father's warning to reconsider a different bride. Now, think about that culturally: the son talk back, talking the dad like it's. I don't know if it's so much anymore culturally here, because just parenting—that's a whole other sermon series. But culturally speaking, the the son would never do this. The son would never look at his dad and say, "Hey, go get her for me." Well, son, that's. Are you sure? Like, can't, isn't there another? Can't you find another bride? Somebody from within our, our own context, our own culture that got no, 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 no. Dad, shut your mouth and go get her for me. Like that, that's what's happening here. It's not a, a cute story. He's saying, I want that. Go get her for me. Sounds like a terrible, insecure, and unstable leader that he would lack so much character. And yet, this is what we're left with. It's God's chosen man for this time in history to deliver his people. Now, I don't want to be too harsh on Samson. I think I, I kind of already have done that. But we've got to understand that there's certain aspects of his life that are written in these pages for us to see, like for us to learn from. So before we're too rough on Samson, I wonder how people would perceive you. Like, it's easy on this side of the page to look at that and think, man, what what a jerk. What a terrible leader. How could he do this? But I wonder, if our life was written out in a story, what would people perceive of us? If your life was written out for all to see, the good, the bad, and the ugly, how would people perceive your character? Would they experience the impulsive traits that we see with Samson? Or would they see a better way? Now, I also don't think it's fair just to push this off on Samson either. Like, to just push back on his his lack of character, to put it out on blast. Meaning the story of Samson is actually part of the bigger story of God's people. So I think it's safe to say that the entire nation of Israel had become impulsive. This isn't just fall on Samson's shoulders. It's it's on broadcast for us. Somebody tweeted about it. We're able to, we can clearly see Samson's flaws, but he lives in the nation of God with all the Israelites. I'm pretty sure this is now a problem with the nation. They have all become impulsive. I mentioned earlier about where the Philistines, where they were residing in Timnah, deep inside the Israelite territory. What was the call for God's people in the beginning of Judges? You remember? What were they to do with the people? The Israelites were to what? Were they supposed to live joyfully and happily among all of the idol-worshipping people? No, what were they supposed to do? You can answer. Thank you. You can drive them. You're supposed to drive them out. Clearly, God says drive them out. Certainly not to live amongst your enemies and just enjoy each other's fellowship. It was to drive them out. The Philistines weren't on their way through. I think it's so interesting, geographically even. God's story here. They weren't just living a comfortable life inside or on the outside skirts of town, outskirts of town. We even see, I think it's verse 5, the Philistines are, are so comfortable, they're now ruling over the Israelites. The people of God had gone, grown so unconscious of their idolatry that over time, culture hadn't just crept in. Like, it's now ruling them. It's not just a, ah, we'll worry about it tomorrow problem. It's here. So I think it's safe to say we can look around and see, even in our culture, in our time that we, we're living in, culture hasn't just crept in. Isn't it just one of those things anymore where we're like, oh, yeah, that could be a problem. No, it, it's a problem. Like, we're living, breathing in the middle of a huge problem it's in our face more than ever our world that we live in is impulsive gender confusion sexual perversion do whatever makes you happy and honestly i think sometimes as a christian we we can have the tendency to just kind of shrink back it's easier to stay quiet it's easier to just give in like oh, man i don't i don't want to mess with this why don't i don't want to stand out like a sore thumb it's easier to just morph into cultural relativity a family, we're on this side of the cross, which means we have been given a better way to live. So I, I want to remind each of us this morning, I've said this early on throughout the series, but the way of Jesus is countercultural. Think about what Paul says. If you've been around for a minute, we've walked through Ephesians, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practices of every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ. Grace Church Alito, that's not the way we've learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him. You were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to what? To put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, each and every one of us, corrupt, corrupt. Through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on this new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We can't read that from Paul. We can't see this with Samson and the Israelites, the nation, and think to ourselves, man, it's going to be just going to be really sweet to live amongst all the people who have given themselves over to sensuality. It's going to be great. People who are greedy ready to practice impurity, this is going to be awesome. I can't wait to live in that culture. That's, that's of course not. Like, that's not what you, when you hear that, you think about, yes, the darkness. When you look around and you see the darkness, we need to remember that conflict, if the way of Jesus is countercultural, then conflict is a must when it comes to culture. Now, I don't mean the conflict where you jump on your social media platform and somebody posts something that you don't like, could be politically whatever it is, and you start conflict, like where you're like, I can't wait for that conflict. Or when you show up to Thanksgiving or Christmas, you just left your family. Like how many of us have that, man, I hope crazy Uncle Joe shows up and starts talking about Mega or whatever he starts talking about, and and you you like look for this conflict to enter into. That's not what I'm, I'm talking about. I mean the conflict that should produce a healthy pressure in your own life. Like, do I look different than the world around me? That's the the pushback, the conflict that I'm saying we should work out in our faith with fear and trembling every day. Do I look different than that of the world? If my life was to be written on these pages, would people recognize I serve King Jesus? Or would they say, man, yeah, he he just fits in culturally. He's really, he's in the know. No. I think we should feel some pressure in our own life to consider this. In the nation, the people have grown complacent. They've compromised, and now more than ever, idolatry and culture has become the way of their life. And here's what's crazy about this entire story this morning. If you look back to the cycle, at this point, I think it's on the screen, at this point, it's incomplete. And here's what I mean by that. Israel has gone from living in peace a bit, to now rebelling and God punishing, and what should be next. What should happen prior to God sending a judge to deliver his people, based on every cycle we've seen yet in judges, what should happen is what? Israel cries out to God. We have no record of them crying out in this case. Nobody seems to be crying out, saying, God, where are you? Would you be our deliverer? Would you save us from ourselves? And yet, God is raising up a judge to deliver them. The final judge that we see in our our narrative, Tim Keller says this, God is starting to save his people by divorcing them from their marriage to their idols and to the world around them. Now, I made mention of this a few moments ago, but the tension of this story doesn't lie in how terrible Israel has become. It doesn't even lie in how terrible of a leader Samson shows to be. The tension for you and I this morning lies in the grace of God to sinners and sufferers. Meaning God doesn't just work through sinners. We've seen that with every judge. Clearly, he uses broken people to advance his kingdom. We've seen that grace, but here on display in the story of Samson, we see to what extent God will go for his people. He can even work through their sin. Do you hear that? He, can't, he doesn't just choose to work through sinners. He says, I can still work through your sin. Like, this blows my mind. You're like, where are you getting this from? Verse 4, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord when he was wanting to go and marry, who was seeking an occasion, the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. Like, how can this be? How can this be from the Lord? How can God raise up a man like this? His people, again, have not just grown comfortable with the idols of the land. They've compromised everything. This isn't the half-hearted discipleship anymore. This is blatant assimilation into the world around them. Michael Wilcock, in his book, The Message of, Jesus, of Judges, says this. The force of four, chapter 14, verse 4, is that the two communities are so interlocked that even the Lord can find nothing to get a hold of to pry them apart. So what does he do? He uses Samson's weaknesses, therefore, to bring about the relationship with this irresistible girl. i got to have her. I want. I'm going to take her. I need this girl. And he uses that from which so much ill feeling will flow. You see, I really believe that God's overall plan for Samson as a judge was to disrupt the Philistines' Philistines comfortable control over Israel. Israel, they've grown too complacent. They've made too many compromises. They hadn't called out for a rescuer. And God uses Samson's, hear me, lack of character. His impulsive behavior, his lack of self-control, he uses that to ignite a spark of resistance within Israel that we'll see play out over the next six, seven weeks. So I think the better question for us this morning is this. To what extent will God go to get a hold of the hearts of his people? Maybe even a bit more personal. What extent has God... Has God gone to get a hold of your heart and all of your sin and your shame and your guilt to what extent has God gone just to captivate and capture your heart this entire book of judges is about grace and mercy and love that flows from from a covenant keeping God who loves his people who's faithful to his people And y'all, that's not just the story of Judges. It's the entire story of the Bible. So this doesn't mean you can just live how you want to live. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not giving you a license to just go out and say, well, Matt said, Matt said I can live however I wanted to because God can work through my sin. It's not what I'm saying. We should care how we behave. There are still consequences to our sinful behavior, but it does mean for you and for me, Brother and sister, it should mean that this stirs our affections to worship a God who can still work through all of your failures for his glory and your good. Like, this is, this is what we sing about. You deserve it. This is the amazing grace that we, that we sing and talk about all the time. He's faithful. This, if you're a Christian, this is your story. Like, I don't think you prettied yourself up and went to God and said, I'm here Look what I've done. I know you need me. Like, I'm pretty sure I've talked to some of y'all. You know my story. I wasn't just, like, needing a life reserve, like, floating out in the ocean. I was dead at the... Not literally speaking, so in case I've never met you. I really didn't die. But, like, I, I was dead in my sin. There was not some life raft that just came along and said, hey, you look like you're struggling. Do you need some help? No, I was dead at the bottom of the ocean, and Jesus Christ came and he reached down at the bottom and he pulled me out, gave me a new heart. There was no surgery. I need you to hear that. There wasn't like a, oh man, I can, I can fix you. I can do this. No, no, no. He took my dead heart because I was dead and he gave me a new heart and he said, hey, just come follow after me. Come trust me. Come put your hope and your faith in me. This is the story that we get wrapped up in, in the God of the Bible, whose love, whose grace, whose mercy, who's pursuing your heart at this very moment. This is the good news of the gospel to you. And if you've never, if you're like, man, I don't know, I don't don't know if I've ever given my life to Christ. Like, let me just help you understand. The Bible is very clear about what your sin does. It separates you from creator. It separates you from experiencing this love and this grace and this mercy and he loves you so much that you're sitting here this morning and he, he's, he's pursuing your heart and he's saying, hey, brother, sister, friend, let me give you this new heart this morning. Let me show you a new way. Let me show you a better way and it's through my son, Jesus. So I don't know where you fit into this story. We can sit here and harp on, on the judges' cycle and we can talk about how terrible they are, newsflash, we live in the cycle as well. The culture we live in, It's broken, it's busted, and yet God still not only uses sinner, he uses your sin for his glory and your good. Run to him this morning. Bank on him this morning, that he can take all of that and use it for your good. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you've been... um, Let me just back up. Thank you that in this moment, every one of us in here were created intentionally, on purpose, given a plan, a mission for our life. And I believe in this very moment you're pursuing the hearts of all of your people. And to be very clear, I want to make sure If anybody's here and is questioning or wondering or skeptic about you and your grace and your love, I pray that they would look to you for maybe the first time and they would hear a gospel that says, "Hey, you can't earn your way, you can't give your way, give enough money to earn your salvation, you can't clean yourself up enough, you can't do enough. Because at the end of the day, you're still separated. We're still dead to our sin." It's not our righteousness. It's not our works that saves us, but God, it's you. And so, Lord, if there's somebody here this morning, I, I beg you, Spirit, give them a new heart to see and feel and believe and experience that you, even if it was just them in this entire world, you would have left your throne. You would have pursued their heart in, in all of their rebellion their shame and their guilt, you still would have went to the cross because you are a God of love and you love your children. Lord, would you do that this morning? And then would you encourage anybody who's just wrestling with, um, am I good enough? Did he really die for me? Like I haven't done enough good things for him. I love this quote that, you, that your spirit put on my heart this week. Not even our own sin will stop you from saving us or using us. Mysteriously, often unseen, and usually far beyond our comprehension, God, you work through the free and very often flawed choices that we make. I was reminded of Romans 8. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So Lord, would you stir in our hearts this morning as we get a chance to respond to your word? If this just stirs us to to worship you more, would we sing joyfully and loudly, praising you, for you are worthy to be praised. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving us and pursuing our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.